Hello, I'm Connor Pope and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today, why is Ireland up there with the worst in Europe for COVID-19 cases, despite everything we've done to try and bring the virus under control? For the first time in a long time, everything seemed to be looking good. We are told we are close to beating COVID-19. We seem to have suppressed or have come close to suppressing what is a very transmissible virus. Then, almost overnight, things seemed to shift and suddenly everything started to look dark. Miel Martin said that the trajectory of the disease had taken a wrong turn after a briefing by senior health officials who expressed concern about rising case numbers and hospitalisations. A country on the edge for almost two years was suddenly back to being afraid again. Neffet meets today to discuss options and to draw up advice for government. It will have to decide on whether or not to proceed with the full reopening of the country from later this week, or maybe just a partial reopening, or maybe look for a third way through the latest phase in a most unpredictable crisis. Irish Times health editor Paul Cullen has been following the story. Paul, a couple of weeks ago, Professor Philip Nolan said that Ireland was close to suppressing the disease and they're his words. But then last week, he said the situation with the virus was on a knife edge. So what exactly is going on? There's been a big about turn in the thinking of officials. It's one that must be quite bewildering for the public, as shown by the quotes you mentioned there. What is happening is basically that we're seeing a rise in case numbers across most adult age groups and across most of the country after a long period of relative stability. Now, numbers didn't go down over the summer, but they, they seem to be under control and they were conforming to the models laid out by, by our health officials and toward, they were towards the optimistic end of those models. But over the last while, we've seen a, an increase in the number of cases among most adult age groups Also, again, children edging up. And we're also seeing a steady increase in the number of patients in hospital and in ICU. And what's also alarming officials is that they're not really sure why this is happening. Everything seemed to be going okay and uh, within the bounds of prediction. And now it's not. And of course, the timing is bad because of the decisions that have to be made about further reopening very shortly. And how is the health system coping with this rise in cases? How close is it to being overwhelmed again? So we're talking about, at the moment, about 400 COVID patients in a hospital. Compare that to over 2,000 at the start of the year during the big wave that happened after Christmas. And it it doesn't seem that we're anywhere near that. But of course, numbers can uh, start rising very fast. We've learned this before. They shouldn't rise as fast as they did in the last winter because of the force of uh, vaccination. But as we know, our health system is creaking. We don't have as many beds or ICU beds as many other of our European neighbours who seem to be in a much more comfortable position. So at the moment, um, it would be wrong to say that we're anywhere near being overwhelmed and there is stretch capacity in the system. Um, But there is some concern about what's happening. We keep hearing that Ireland has one of the highest rates of vaccination in the world. And of course, our lockdowns and our rules on social distancing and mask wearing have been pretty well enforced. So why are the numbers here so high when compared to other countries in the EU and elsewhere in the world? Like, what are we doing wrong? 
Yeah, I mean, that's the question I've been asking for quite a while. Uh, some people have theories, but there's no firm answers on this, really. Um, I mean, it is true we, we have something like 93% of our adult population vaccinated. Our glass is 93% full. And of course, uh, at the moment, we're more inclined to understandably think that it's 7% empty. Um, I'm not so sure that our um, rules have been enforced so strictly. Um, you know, I mean, certainly we have a COVID pass on like Britain, for example, but it's not that strictly ad- adhered to. One third of customers say that they weren't asked for to show their pass when they used a business. And that's been pretty consistent since the summer. It is a cause of despair, to be honest with you, because we did have a very long lockdown um, we were slow to to lift the, the restrictions. Uh, we didn't rush into anything this year. And, and yet we've been saddled with a situation which, as you said, is, has been described as being on, an, on a knife edge. Is our proximity to the UK driving numbers? Or more, more particularly, is there any evidence that our proximity to the UK is driving case numbers? Well, for much of the pandemic, as I've observed the figures, um, there has been a very strong trend within our, the Republic of Ireland, where the highest figures uh, for, for COVID-19 have been generally congregated up towards the border. So there seems to be a clear cross-border effect for, for, for much of the last 18 months, uh, where infection was being uh, brought across uh, the border from the north. Uh, and sometimes in the reverse direction as well. Uh, and then more broadly uh, to the UK, which has had higher numbers, which opened up earlier than anywhere else in Europe. And the uh, traffic between those two countries is certainly a chief um, suspect in, 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 for the reasons for what's happening. It was identified as such by the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, last week. Uh, he said that his officials were saying that the proximity to the UK was one of the the driving factors. The other one he mentioned was the early arrival of the Delta uh, variant in Ireland, which got a solid hold here. We haven't really been able to root it out and get our numbers down to low le- low levels. I'm not so sure about that because it did it did get everywhere else fairly quickly. But it would also have been a byproduct of our proximity to the UK and to our reliance on international travel, which leads to a reseeding of new forms of the virus in this country very quickly and more quickly than in other countries, perhaps. In pre-COVID times, what was our record like when it came to managing respiratory infections? Were we worse, better or the same as other countries? Well, certainly the international tables would say that we have some of the worst records for some forms of respiratory disease like COPD and asthma, for example, um, we're, we're the worst in Europe, from memory, are very near that. I, you know, I mean, every country goes through a winter and they have different different weather systems and so on. Some countries are drier and have more sub-zero temperatures than others. That might make a difference. We tend to we tend to be quite fatalistic, as you know, about the weather here in Ireland in winter, about how damp it is. And we seem to have had up to now a high acceptance of colds and flus. I think that's changed now. And I think one of the positive benefits of the the COVID pandemic is that through all the rules we've had, we know, for example, we had no flu last year. Hopefully we might get off a bit more lightly this year. And, you know, the the winter can be made a lot more bearable by following a few simple rules about hygiene and distancing and, and, uh, and so on. So our record has been poor, all right. And it's been shown up that that can't be tolerated when something like COVID comes along. And could our poor record be contributing to our poor record with COVID? Or are they totally unrelated? 
No, no. I mean, the, the rules that were put in, in force in terms of distancing and masks and so on shut the door on, 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 on uh, flu last winter and a lot of those respiratory bugs. And, and obviously it, it was used to, to get COVID numbers down. So, you know, we've essentially reset the, the, the counter and it, you know, it's up to us now to decide how we want to live our lives in winter. But obviously Christmas and even Halloween places a lot of strain on that kind of regimen, which is probably pushes us apart and maybe that's not in our nature. But at the moment, I think people are still spooked enough by, by COVID uh, that uh, they will carry on those behaviours for at least this winter. And of course, we're heading into the winter now and we all remember what happened last winter with that terrible surge in the post-Christmas period. Should people be fearful that could happen again? Well, I I can't see uh, it happening in the same form as it did yeah, last year, but may, may, very few people, myself included, saw what was going to happen last year um, because uh, obviously it involved a new strain of the disease one, which has already passed through us and been supplanted by something even more transmissible. So there were a number of factors there which were unique, but certainly this year, thanks to the vaccination we are largely protected, but that is not a perfect protection. Dark vaccines are not 100% uh, protective, but they remain very, even uh, after six or eight months, they remain highly protective against serious illness, hospitalization and death. So, for example, looking over the last six months, I saw figures quoted last week whereby of the of the deaths, the COVID deaths that occurred, for example, and they were in their hundreds, all but a tiny handful involved people with underlying conditions. So, you know, COVID isn't an equal opportunities uh, attacker, really. It, it does target people who are vulnerable and they're the ones that we probably have to take most care of. But the rest of us, we, if we're assuming we're vaccinated, should be protected against uh, serious illness. Over the course of your day, you probably speak to a lot of different medical experts. And have the experts you've been talking to expressed a view on what we should do next? Should we consider pausing the planned easing of restrictions in the weeks ahead? Yeah, I suppose there are two, two, two groups of experts. Some of our experts are grouped in, in, in NEFID in the, in, among our public health officials in the depart, department and are tied into all that. And we're, they're going to pronounce on that fairly soon. Uh, but then we have the other independent experts who are in universities and hospitals and uh, even on uh, podcasts and so on. But, um, you know, they haven't been too alarmist, I, I, I think, up to now. Some have even said we should go ahead with uh, the easing of restrictions. Others have said we should do the minimum necessary to allow for the reopening and the maintenance of open society. So um, I think people are still trying to decide and, and, and waiting for the queue from NEFIT, who have the most access to trends and to figures, uh, before deciding. But it's it, uh, just as the situation with COVID is on a knife edge, I think the decisions around what we might do are also up in the balance. There's been a lot of talk about booster shots and the over 80s and the over 65s in long term residential care are getting them now. What about the rest of the population? So this is under consideration by the National Immunisation Advisory Committee, the body that looks at these matters. In the past, uh, during this pandemic, they have refused to be rushed, even though there were calls for, for access to various vaccines in various times. Um, and they're taking the same approach here. They like to get in scientific data from different countries before they make a, an informed decision. As you mentioned, yes, over 80s, 
people in nursing homes and also immunocompromised. The campaign to give those groups booster shots is underway already. There is pressure, I think, and there will be pressure for age-related uh, boosters, particularly in the 60 to 70 group who got AstraZeneca, and also health workers who are among the first to get vaccines and might be concerned about a waning of, of their protection. So I think the case isn't proven for booster shots. It's not the recommendation of the WHO. Um, there, is, there are moral issues around this, about the uh, use of limited supplies, when really the real need is to give a first shot to, to people who can't get it around, around the world in many parts of the developing world. But inevitably, given, given the way countries run, I think we're going to hear more about this. And I think it's likely that we will start vaccinating older people um, with a booster and also healthcare workers, possibly next month. And what are the real arguments against these boosters? I mean, it's been reported in Israel, for instance, that boosters, masks and vaccine passes helped push down the latest COVID surge in, in that country. And the measures they've put in place there have driven case numbers down by 80% since September. So that's a really significant decline. So in pure self-interest terms, should we not be clamouring for more boosters for a broader range of the population? Well, people who contact me about these issues are clamouring for it, but uh, the question is whether we should do it or not. The scientific uh, data is obviously only emerging. Um, certainly the consensus at the moment is for many scientists to be unconvinced uh, of the need. Remember, we're not talking about protection against getting infected uh, primarily, but uh, about protection against uh, serious illness. And most of the people I talk to maintain that the vaccines that we have been given so far, the two doses for most of us, provide excellent protection against serious illness and do not need to be boosted at this stage. But there is a counter argument there that says, well, if you can protect people through a booster from getting infected, even if it's only a mild one, you're also reducing transmission. And of course, that's a very important consideration. So if we can cut down transmission, then you you stop the virus spreading to, to more vulnerable people and you reduce the pressure on your health service, which is going to be one of the primary considerations for Ireland uh, over the next month or two. Paul, thanks as ever for talking to us. Take care. Coming up, the political ramifications of the latest surge in COVID-19. Jennifer, the mood music shifted dramatically last week. What was the political reaction to the worsening COVID situation? I think there was a lot of surprise, to be honest with you, at how quickly things had changed. You know, it was only a couple of days previous when we were following Michal Martin around Slovenia, the rural hills of Slovenia. And, you know, we asked him the question about October 22nd and whether those restrictions, whether they would still be eased or not. And he was very optimistic at the time. He basically said that it was all systems go and, and that was the plan. It was really only a couple of days after that that we started to get rumblings that there were problems or that the uh, picture had started to deteriorate. Uh, and so what happened, uh, uh, as you might remember, during the week then last week was that uh, there was a meeting of the senior officials group. And these are basically senior officials group is the heads of departments, they're the secretary generals of departments, they're all of the main advisors. And they met and had a briefing from the deputy chief medical officer, Ronan Glynn, um, where what was described as a serious picture was painted and where it was put very clearly to the, the officials in that room that 
things were going in the wrong, the wrong direction and, and quite quickly as well. So after that, I think there was a briefing prepared and that briefing was sent on to the Taoiseach then that afternoon. And that's when we started to hear word filter out about the fact that, you know, we know obviously the cases have been high and kind of stubbornly high, but that the trajectory of the disease now was going in a, in, in a direction that worried uh, public health officials. So then towards the, the latter part of, of last week, then we had kind of journalists and press conferences because obviously we had all the post-budget press conferences happening. So it's kind of the perfect time to be able to ask different ministers what was going on, what was their thinking on, on, on this news. And it became very evident that they were taking it very seriously and that they were waiting to see what the data would be over the weekend. And when they had that information in their possession, then they would meet uh, this week to make a decision about whether to proceed with lifting of remaining restrictions on October 22nd or whether to hit the brake uh, for the time being. Now, the government hasn't been briefed yet by NEFET. That's happening today. What's the appetite for a delay in the reopening of Ireland across government circles? There really isn't a strong appetite for it at all. Not that I am picking up. I think firstly, people are looking back, ministers particularly looking back at this time last year when they came to a crossroads, it might have been a little bit forward on, but basically this time last year when they came to a crossroads about a similar situation where things were going in the wrong direction and people were looking forward to Christmas. And obviously we know what happened then. Um, they made the decision to, to kind of deviate from NEFID advice. You know, I think we were only coming out of the budget last year when we had calls for level five. So, you know, they are on one hand keeping an eye on that and and remembering that and trying to make sure that they don't make the same mistakes. But on the other hand, there is this feeling that I pick up amongst cabinet ministers that we're in a very different place because now we have vaccinations. Now we have 91 or nearly 92 percent of the population fully vaccinated. And so that that really does change the picture. And we're one of the highest in the EU when it comes to that. So there's a lot of reticence. But I, from talking to people, I get the impression that they really don't want to have to press pause. They really don't want to have to say to the nightclubs or the venues that you're going to have to wait a little while longer because their fear is if they say that, will they be able to give them an actual date this time? Will they be able to say it's just for two weeks? They they probably won't because that could be a false promise, which could lead to a lot of frustration in those sectors. So the, the fear is that if they do pause it, it'll obviously cause a lot of angst, a lot of upset and could leave them in a position where this could go on till the end of the year, this indefinite pause. But if they do go ahead full steam, that they could also end up in a position where they're being blamed uh, for acting carelessly and recklessly when it comes to public health. There's been a lot of talk of allowing a partial reopening, maybe maintaining the rule on masks or social distancing or ensuring that the COVID passport is still in place. Do you think that's likely at this stage? I think so, yeah. I think that there's a real appetite to find a middle ground um, or a middle way, as it was put to me a couple of days ago. And what that could involve would be, as you mentioned, so we, we know we have these passes to get into restaurants or pubs or, or venues. And that was supposed to be abolished and done away with on October 22nd, because October 22nd was basically supposed to be. Now, I am not calling it Freedom Day because that is absolutely not what it was ever <laughs> supposed to be. But it was supposed to be a really seismic date, actually, where we saw even stuff like the, the physical distancing of two metres uh, removed, you know, restrictions on numbers and in, in venues removed. I think that ministers are looking at each of these different measures and asking themselves what which ones would be the least reckless to go ahead with. And it would make sense, a lot of them think, to keep the COVID pass because then you're ensuring that let's say you do go ahead with the reopening of nightclubs, which is looking more uncertain, but we'll see. Let's say you do go ahead with that. 
you know, there's obviously a certain safety to only allowing vaccinated people indoors. And, and that's the science. So they, they will look at each of the different measures. I think they'll weigh them up on, on their merits and they'll decide which ones are safest to go ahead with. The government was obviously scarred by the post-Christmas surge in COVID cases and then caution was the key in the months that followed. Do you think they will maintain that caution or will the government be tempted to deviate from any NEFID advice they might get as they did in the run-up to last Christmas? I think they will probably stick to what the NEFID advise. Now, in recent months, what we've seen is that sometimes they deviate, but only slightly. They might tweak a date or they might change a certain restriction. But by and large, they have stuck to... And they have been of actually the same mind a lot of the time as an effort when it comes to the uh, different restrictions and the different uh, advices that they give. I think one of the things that would make them more cautious and more likely to stick with the NEFID advice would be the fact that there is a lot of concern about waning immunity. There's a lot of concern that people who would be at the most vulnerable, maybe older age groups, they would have got their vaccines, their first and second dose much earlier this year and that that uh, immunity that they were conferred may be significantly waning. And we, if you couple that with the fact that the cases are going in the direction that they have been going, I think that they would look at those two facts and then probably have to take the advice of the public health doctors very seriously. And it kind of leads to an interesting debate that's going on in government at the moment, which is about this booster campaign. There are a lot of very strong advocates in government for that campaign to be rolled out immediately, going down through the age cohorts, you know, different age cohorts downwards, as we saw with the with the main campaign. But there are also some sceptics, you know, there are some people who think that, well, firstly, you had the advice from the uh, WHO, which is that when other countries are struggling to uh, get their sh- fair share of vac- vaccines, that we should be sending that to them. Is it ethical to be doing that? But also, is the science fully there yet? People in government who point towards it being there point towards Israel. And they say that in Israel, they offered a booster campaign to anybody, a booster shot to anybody who wanted it. And actually, in fairness, if you do look at the cases in Israel uh, over the last week or two weeks or three weeks, um, they have been significantly falling. So that's a debate that we will also see play out. Uh, it will play out, you know, over today and tomorrow, um, especially when they receive that advice from the National Immunisation Advisory Committee, which will look at the issue of booster shots. Jennifer Bray, thank you very much for talking to us. That's it for today. In the news, we'll be back on Wednesday.